We are kicking things off with a word from our sponsor. The new streaming service, Film Movement Plus, opens a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But as a listener of Watch with Jen, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code WATCHWITHJEN, all one word. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen. Before we begin, you might have noticed that I checked the box for explicit content on this episode. Rest assured, it isn't overly graphic, but because of the mature sexual themes that are discussed within James Spader's filmography, sensitive listeners and those with children might appreciate a warning. Thank you and enjoy the show. Today I'm joined by a very singular writer, Kate Hagen, whose work has appeared in Playboy, The Hollywood Reporter, 538, Seed and Spark, and more. In 2019, she brought her essay, The Last Great Video Store, to TEDx, and she also appears in the documentary, The Last Blockbuster, to discuss the importance of video stores in our lives. Additionally, since 2014, Kate has served as the director of community at The Blacklist, where she's an executive and producer, edits, curates, and writes for the Blacklist blog, manages the entire Blacklist online community, and is the point person on all website partnerships. Plus, she oversees their social media ecosystem with over 250,000 followers as well. Welcome, Kate. It is an honor to have you on the podcast today. How are you doing and how have you been adapting to the ongoing pandemic? Thank you so much for having me, Jen. Yeah, big fan of the show, big fan of your writing as well. So this is really cool to get to come together and have a chat about all sorts of fun stuff. Um, you bet. You know, all things considered on my end, it's honestly been a really sort of restorative and, and really reflective pandemic. I don't know. I think as we've sort of come around on a year, I'm start starting to appreciate some of the gifts that the pandemic has given along with all of the stress and really hard stuff and really just like, you know, malaise and, and mm -hmm. terrors that we've been facing. But I've been trying to be grateful for more of the sort of like, you know, reflective time, the things that I've learned about myself, the things that I've learned about relationships, my relationship to work, all of that. Um, and I've watched a ton of movies. I watched yeah. more movies last year than I had ever watched. And I'm almost keeping pace to hit 365 this year. I got a little bit behind this week. But that's my goal for 2021 is 365 movies because I've never actually done that. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm not going to tell you my number because it's really embarrassing. It's too too high but i love your goal no, that's so I, good I, 
I'm envious of folks who can do that. I sort of tap out, I've realized, four movies in a day is my max. Like, any okay. more than that, like, the fifth movie will just... Nothing. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I definitely have some friends. Like, uh, I, my friend Mariah Gates did, uh, I think she hit a 1,000 in a year once, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. Yeah. So just, like, big ups to you guys for having that attention span. <laughs> this is perfect. The last person I talked to was Mariah Gates on Monday, actually. So I love that. You guys are back-to-back. Perfect. We love synergy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, and it's uh, Jen and I, before we got on, we we're just talking about that's been one of the nice gifts of the pandemic is being able to connect with folks that you've been sort of adjacent to orbiting around, but haven't really had a chance to speak with in depth. So it's nice to see all of these connections being forged. And that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about in terms of like the gifts of the pandemic. Yeah. So yeah, it's been, you know, a really, really, can I curse? Is that okay? <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah, Yeah. it's been a really fucking hard year, but it's also been a really sort of exciting year in some ways, which I know I don't want to minimize the suffering and real losses that Mm -hmm. anybody has has experienced. But at the same time, I do think that we all needed this kind of hard reset on the way we were living. So yeah, I hope people take some of these lessons into the aftertimes and we don't just go back to busy, busy, busy constantly. Yeah, I think it's so good to stay connected with others, like more than your little community or your circle in real life. It's good to be able to talk to people all over the world. And this has really been a good gift, I think, that we have from this. Exactly. Well, you're a woman who wears many hats. In fact, you do so much. I wonder if you even have time to sleep, Kate. So are you working on anything new that you would like to give us a sneak preview of? Yeah, so a couple things in my in my sort of atmosphere right now, I would say the most pressing among them is I have revived the last great video store project. It had been okay. dormant for a bit. Um, and kind of early in the pandemic, I had had some friends and some, you know, uh, sort of acquaintances as a result of the video store project reach out to me and be like, oh, are you going to write something about video stores during the pandemic? And for like, I would say at least six months, I just couldn't like there was just too much too many other things going on. No offense to to the role of video stores in our culture, but we had bigger fish to fry and bigger sort of things to figure out. But kind of starting last winter, I I think really the thing that kind of catalyzed it was the fact that Family Video announced their closure. And that just means the entire Midwest is now without video stores. It's like 250 locations. Um, And that was sort of the moment where I was like, okay, we have to get organized if there's going to be a future for video stores post-pandemic. So I am really, really good friends with Maggie McKay at Vidiots, who is just one of the most inspirational, wonderful humans I have ever met. And we talked about what would be sort of most useful from her perspective as like a, an operator of a video store. And we sort of landed on creating this directory. So I have been working on the last couple of weeks putting together a directory of all of the remaining video stores in the world, which has been both really exciting and really heartening and also a bit depressing because there are significantly fewer stores than when I did this in 2018. In 2018, we had about 400 locations on the map I made and we're sitting at right about 60 and you know is that just in our country or 60 worldwide 60 worldwide oh my goodness 
Yeah, it's pretty yeah. it's pretty sobering. Um, and, you know, within that, there have been some really great stories. Like, I discovered a video store in Santa Cruz that has, like, a collection of over 100,000 titles, which puts them in, like, top five in the world. I found what I think is the oldest video rental store in the world in Kassel, Germany. So there have been some really, really nice um, sort of parts of that process. But I don't know, it just really shows to me how important video stores are, the ones that are remaining, the ways we need to support them, the ways we need to organize around them. And, you know, I just think of a future where no kid has ever been to a video store. Mm. And that's really grim to me. Like, I don't want to yeah. live in that world. No. Um, but I would say, you know, there have been some some really encouraging things that have happened too. like um, my friend Eric Allen Hatch, who is one of the folks who run Beyond Video in Baltimore. He was telling me that they've had lines around the block, which is so good to hear. And I got a chance to tour the new videos location where it's going to be in Eagle Rock. And that is just spectacular. I, L.A. needs that film space so badly to have an inclusive women run film space. That's going to be a theater, a, a video store a social hangout spot so there's definitely definitely some light on the horizon i just need folks to realize right now how important this is and you know a tweet goes a long way buying a t-shirt from your video your favorite video store mm -hmm. goes a long way doing rent by mail goes a long way anything that you can sort of organize around to support these folks so that they can survive the pandemic is incredibly helpful very true. I write for DVD Netflix, the the blog that they run, and I can't even tell you how many people will reply to the woman who runs the social media account or my contact there, Annie Jung, or they'll reply to me when I write a piece like, wait a second, they still do rentals by mail? And it's like, we never stopped. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to remember the numbers exactly, but when I wrote the piece in 2018, it was something like 50% of Netflix's overhead is sort of subsidized by the video rentals that they're still doing, which like you said, most people still don't think that you can do DVD Netflix, but it is a great way to get stuff that's not streaming or has gone out of print elsewhere. But yeah, I actually, I just right before I clicked on to this, um, this podcast, I saw a headline that La Dolce Vita is not streamable right now, which you're just Ugh. like, the, these are not obscure films, guys. These are, you know, beloved Classics. classic films. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, I can understand why some of the, the things that have gone out of print have, but then you look at something like that and you're just like, how is this possible? Uh, I think Criterion has La Dolce Vita. But yeah, it, the idea that like a young film fan can't mm -hmm. spend even like three dollars to rent La Dolce Vita, you're like, guys, we gotta we gotta figure this out. Yeah, I know, so true. Well, on Twitter, one of the things you're known for beyond, of course, your activism with video stores, is your love of not just erotic movies, but especially those with James Spader. You're something of a Spader scholar which is probably how we first connected, I think, or started following one another because I'm a big fan. I'm not a Spader scholar. You are, you have that title. Nobody <laughs> is the equal of Kate in that regard. But it's funny. Usually I always let guests choose the topic, but I knew immediately that when it comes to Kate Hagen, since you're the authority on Spader, I think I basically just badgered you into doing this. 
at least for your first episode. So I do apologize. And I'm like, nope, you're coming on. You're talking space. Uh, twist my arm to talk about one of my favorite topics in movies. I yeah. guess, Jen. Yeah. <laughs> I know. So Kate, what is it about the actor and his film personas that you find so compelling? <sighs> That's a really interesting question because I've definitely tried to unpack it over the years. And I really think that like my appreciation for Spader has sort of evolved as I've evolved as a person too. Like mm-hmm. my first exposure to him, like most people, was pretty in pink, the sort of asshole <laughs> who's chasing after Molly Ringwald and is super cool with his white car and his cigarettes and is just the most depraved high school party I think anybody ever has thrown in a movie. Yeah. Uh, you're like everybody is doing cocaine at this party Um, but I I always had a soft spot for him sort of generally and I would say there were a couple things that sort of catalyzed it I was about 15 when Secretary hit um, Cable after it had come out and that movie had a huge impact on me not just in terms of Um, you know, being a really compelling atypical love story but it was one of the first things that it depicted a sort of sexual and kinky sexual lifestyle in a positive way mm-hmm. and showed that it could be from a place of love and affection. Secretary has its issues. The review on that movie is very interesting as a person who now like knows more about things like consent, but it had a big impact on me. I remember watching that movie and thinking like, oh, this is just going to be for the sort of like titillation factor. And then you're like, mm-hmm. this is so cute. Like, I really want them to be together. And then they do that cut at the very end where she's like, we had a June wedding. And you're like, oh, my God. Um So that was definitely a big one. I also saw Crash way, way, way too young. Um, Okay. But that was what (laughs) I saw, like, the first 10 minutes of Crash, and then I didn't see the rest of the movie for, like, six months, which was a very interesting experience to have. Um, Because I just, like, caught it on cable and then got called to dinner or something. Um, But, yeah. And then through the years it's like you know you see spader pop up in all sorts of stuff but i would say in the last couple years has been my sort of push to be like i need to see every james spader performance like Mm -hmm. i just want to like i don't know i've just decided he's kind of like my actor i'm gonna plant my flag with (laughs) but i think he walks this really really fine line and is one of the few actors i can think of with the exception of maybe like a Jeremy Irons who is able to play both that like really really complex and dangerous erotic heat but doesn't feel like a threat and doesn't feel like a bad guy like you there's still a sort of affection and a playfulness with him mm-hmm. that i don't know that a lot of other american actors sort of capture um yeah and you know he's he's one of his big interview lines that he uses all the time is like you know it can never get weird enough for me and i think the choices he's made throughout his career really speak to that. I mean, even something like The Blacklist, where it's like this sort of like expected net network procedural, mm-hmm. he's just like made a meal of this part. Um, he really has. Yeah. But you know, he's a beautiful human being. He's incredibly charming. Um, I think the fact that he has like infused these sort of romantic and erotic roles with the real sort of edge and a little bit of weirdness is 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 something that's uh definitely appealing to me because like i don't know you look at somebody like brad pitt who is just like an object objectively handsome human Mm -hmm. being and you're like 
yeah, like they're on Brad Pitt. Okay, like, you know, everybody enjoys the shirt removal and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but it's like, would I actually like to smooch Brad Pitt? I don't know. Like, I, but like, Spader, you're like, oh, like Spader, I could meet at a bar and like have a really flirty conversation. I don't know. There's just like an approachability there. But yeah, it's he's one of the, the actors of my life that sort of carried through. Um, but yeah, I think it's that sort of, he treads that line better mm-hmm. than pretty much any American actor I can think of. No, that's a really great observation about him. I feel like, and you mentioned a, a flirty conversation, he seems like somebody you would want to have a really good conversation with, which is rare. There's vulnerability, there's a lot of layers. You were just always wanting to know more. So I can see that. Well, for today, you selected three works starring James that saw him trashing his John Hughes embodiment of smug yuppie (laughs) cruelty persona for good even if he plays a definite variation of the rich entitled yuppie in at least two of the movies we're talking about we will be discussing the film that essentially put him and 26 year old writer director steven soderbergh on the map in the form of sex lies and videotape director curtis hansen's underrated bonkers thriller bad influence and david cronenberg's controversial sexy car crash movie crash as well obviously i'm sure we'll discuss his roles in other films along the way because how can you not but before we get into that we should probably mention that there will be potential spoilers in the conversation as we go for these films and maybe a couple others to do tread carefully i'm really fascinated by this period you chose in spader's career And I think it's because I so applaud his willingness to take risks. Do you think that's why you're drawn to this era of Spader as well? Yeah, definitely. And like, I don't know that Hollywood ever fully figured out what to do with James Spader. He, to me, is the sort of like, he breaks the ceiling on like a great character actor, but he was like leading man pretty. But he because he sought out these roles that were sort of, not standard he didn't want to do the like big hollywood leading man thing he does a couple times and things like stargate and then just does not (laughs) feel like he's having a good time (laughs) but yeah i definitely think that part of it comes from this willingness to take on these roles that other people like it's really really difficult to imagine anybody else say in the sex lies and videotape role of graham but yeah he i think that the moment where his career sort of pivots from being a teen idol to like an adult actor and to see the fact that these were the choices he was making at that time when so many of his peers were doing like you know diminishing returns romantic comedies or like Mm -hmm. sort of wacky caper stuff and he was like I'm not gonna do that and because of it he's got a way more interesting filmography than a lot of his peers from that he really does yeah no, that's so so true. I was thinking of the other Brat Pack era actors, and I can't imagine them taking on these roles like right away as much as he does. I mean, he just dives right in there. It's really commendable. All right, well, kicking things off, let's start with Steven Soderbergh's feature filmmaking debut, 1989's Sex Lies and Videotape, which the filmmaker wrote in just eight days after spending a year obsessing about it and filling notebooks with ideas, snippets of dialogue, and his thoughts. 
perfectly foreshadowing or perhaps tapping into the mindset of Gen X, even if technically Soderbergh is a boomer, this deeply personal film about the relationships and sex lives of four 20-something Louisiana adults was also a major calling card for not only its young director, but the 90s independent film boom and shift to small handmade works to come as well. In the movie, James Bader stars as Graham, a recovering liar and seducer, similar to Soderbergh, who had recently come out of a bad period in his personal life. The now relatively zen-like Graham seems to be punishing himself for his own misdeeds by ensuring that he and the women he meets cannot get physically involved, alienating himself from the intimacy of sexual relations by instead connecting with women on a human level at an arm's length by a video camera. It seems that the now impotent Graham records women's thoughts and experiences through sexual interviews with each one that he keeps on videotape. After he arrives in Baton Rouge to stay with a two-timing smug yuppie, his old college friend, really well played by Peter Gallagher, Graham gets more than he bargained for when he falls for his sexually disinterested wife, Andy McDowell. Not wanting to admit his attraction, which is very mutual, things get even more complicated when he meets and films a tape of the woman Gallagher's John is cheating on McDowell's Anne with in the form of her sister, Cynthia, played by Laura San Giacomo, who's flirtatious, extroverted, and everything that Anne is not. It is a fascinating portrait of all involved. I deeply love this film. In fact, it was the subject of my film school thesis, which I won a scholarship for. So I'm very pleased that you selected it. So Kate, what are your thoughts on Graham, Spader, and Sex Lies and Videotape? Yeah, I mean, like you, Jen, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. Like, yeah. I, this is one of those movies I watch, I think, probably like twice a year. Like, it's one of the few sort of like rare tier, like there's always something new for me to learn from this movie. I saw this when I was a teenager for the first time, obviously sort of drawn in by like sex lies and videotape (laughs) and the Spader piece, but kind of like secretary. Yes. The movie has moments of like real erotic heat and has these really sexually charged exchanges. But the thing that really attracted me to it is it's like, Oh wow. Like what a, what a emotionally vulnerable, film and how naked these performances are in just these conversations in these moments of real deep emotional intimacy i i still can't believe this movie exists on some level like i know i feel like it was often imitated and never really duplicated in terms of just like 20 somethings talking about their sex lives super small scope with really high emotional stakes um but yeah, I I really adore this movie. I actually watched it maybe like a month ago again. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just so compelling to me. And I think it's one of those movies that as you get older, you see different facets in it and you find yourself relating to characters differently. Like this last watch, I've always had empathy for the Laura San Giacomo character. Mm-hmm. But this time I was like, oh my God, what a tragic figure this character is. And like, you just want the best for her. Um, but I, what a debut from Soderbergh. I mean, I love Soderbergh, but on some level for me, I don't know that I like any Soderbergh movies as much as I like this movie in particular. I mean, he's made 
many other masterpieces, but like mm-hmm. this, the immediacy of this one to me still works. And what is it? It's, you know, people having conversations in rooms with each other. Um, but yeah, I, I am just endlessly captivated by this film. And like you were saying, you get somebody like Peter Gallagher who takes this sort of like asshole yuppie part and mm-hmm. does something transcendent with it. And I think it just really goes to show how much trust the actors had in Soderbergh and what he was trying to accomplish. And, you know, beyond all of that sort of high-minded academic stuff, it's just a really sexy movie. It shows you how sexy conversations can be, how how important sexual tension is, mm-hmm. the idea of, you know, the transgression is available to you, but what are you going to do with it? Are you going to actually transgress or are you going to stay good? Um, which is sort of the dilemma both for the Annie McDowell character character and the spader character um but yeah i i would love to know what was your your thesis about specifically related to this movie it was mainly positing that this was the first real movie of generation x and how we came into the 90s and launched the independent film boom what i love about it i can't believe it exists either because um i can't imagine well i know because i researched it but the agents getting this script, a lot of them wouldn't even show their clients. Like Elizabeth McGovern, I think, was an early top choice for him. And agent wouldn't even show it to him. But I think one of the reasons it's remarkable, too, is it takes place in Baton Rouge. Like, we've all seen New York movies about 20-somethings talking about their sex lives or sexier movies, Carnal Knowledge, which I can't remember where that took place. But it definitely wasn't Baton Rouge. So it's interesting on that level. Another thing I love about it is that it's so highly personal. Soderbergh has talked about, even though everyone zeroes in on Graham as being the most autobiographical, and he kind of is, that he's related to all four different characters at different times of his life. And I think you do. It's kind of like The Graduate, which inspired the movie. In that when you watch The Graduate when you're young, you're kind of identifying with Elaine or Benjamin. When you get older, you're starting to think, boy, was everybody just stupid when it came to Mrs. Robinson. So it's a nice one to look back on. And I think you were talking about the title and the allure of the title. And I think what's really alluring is it sounds sexier than it actually is. I mean, it's a sexy movie but it's a movie about conversation and how erotic that can be, which came right from Soderbergh. He was in a relationship with a woman he had a terrible crush on, but she was involved with somebody else. And he said that they would hang out all the time and talk. And he's like, these were the most just because of the sexual tension. Like he never slept with her, but just, just the most erotic moments of his life were in this conversation. And I always have loved that as well. So there's a lot of reasons why I love the movie and I respond to it. So I was really excited to dive back in. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those that like, I don't know, it's got such a timeless quality. Like it just, it feels like it could have been made 15 minutes ago and we still wouldn't be like fully ready for it. Yeah. 
I there are so few films that like get at that sort of emotional intimacy of having these conversations around sex like one of the few moments I think in like a newer movie that sort of does that is there's a great bit in Take This Waltz where Sarah Polly's character is being pursued by Luke Kirby's character but she's married to Seth Rogen oh, and that's they're right. at, yeah yeah and there's that great moment where they're at a cafe and he's like oh let me tell you exactly what I would do to you if you if we were to sleep together and you're like oh this is the sexiest thing I've ever seen and (laughs) sitting in a diner um but yeah I I think it's one of the great sort of I don't want to say like ruses that Soderbergh pulled but in he knew exactly what he was doing and making his splash as a filmmaker and was like I'm gonna come up with the most salacious title that you have Mm -hmm. ever heard and then sort of bait and switch with this like really emotionally complex film that as you were saying is still incredibly sexy but like Mm -hmm. comes because we're so invested in these characters so invested in these relationships it's not just tna um and the movie for me has some of my favorite moments of just like a emotional intimacy erotic intimacy like you know the moment that's you know sort of become one of the calling cards for the moment the movie when you know James Spader and Annie McDowell, he turns off the tape. And, you know, we see later what has happened to the two of them. But the, like, all of the face touching, the taking her hair down, the just, Mm -hmm. like, sitting on a couch together. And you're like, yeah, in the right hands, this is every bit as as appealing as as maybe a more graphic sex scene would be. I'm glad you brought up the, the Baton Rouge of it all, too, because that's something I'm struck by as an adult. What a bold choice that is. Because like, yeah. as you were saying, it's so many of these sort of, like, sexy movies are New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, but to go to the South, to go to this just, like, more normal American mm-hmm. experience, um... I also love what it does for just the the sort of dressing of the movie. Like there's that great moment after um, we see what well, we don't see Peter Gallagher and Laura San Giacomo have sex, but we catch up with them immediately afterwards. And they're mm-hmm. just like, covered in sweat in this yeah. way. Like, oh, right. We're in Louisiana. Like it's not necessarily that they've just had like marathon sex. It's just like everything is just damp. Yeah. And I, it's, it's a really interesting setting for a movie that's about, sex and personal lives and emotional sort of betrayals and and the sort of things we do to not have to have those moments and I what a smart choice to put it in the American South like just goes to show Soderbergh gets it I mean it's nice to see him revisit those sort of locations and settings and moods and something like Logan Lucky and he still totally gets it like he knows how to make a movie about different parts of the country that isn't pandering or condescending um and feels pretty authentic um yeah yeah oh brilliant points exactly the title we should probably zero in on I think the most important word is lies Because if you go with sex and videotape, you think you're going to be watching like a Cinemax movie. But I think lies is the real draw. And it really intrigues you. Because it is a movie about trust. And it's about liars. And the desire to be honest. But what is honest if you're not really being honest with yourself? So, yeah, it's just a fascinating film on so many levels. You mentioned the sex scenes or lack thereof. It's like we see them before or after. He had to, when he was talking with Laura San Giacomo's agents, agree that there was no nudity because this was her first film and 
you know, they were very worried about her being in it. And it was, I think, a decision that served him well, because he realized when he does watch sex scenes in his own life, he said, as soon as an actor takes off their clothes, you're like not seeing the character anymore. You're starting to see them as, oh my gosh, that would be Jennifer Lopez or George Clooney, which, which is why he did what he did in Out of Sight and made it like the sexiest scene of all time. So I think this movie was a good training ground for him to get there. Yeah, and I mean, like, Soderbergh is so good at making movies for adults. And, like, mm -hmm. just, I, I don't mean that it's necessarily adult subject matter all the time, but there's just a rigor and a formalism to how he approaches any topic, whether it's NASCAR racing or robbing a bank in Las Vegas <laughs> or, you know, a, a doll factory that you... Oh, really yeah, Bubble. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> Forgot <laughs> really, about that. Yeah. Yeah, that whole, like, weird uh, early 2000s period. But, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Out of Sight, too, because, like, talk about a movie that does so much more than the sum of its parts within that sex scene. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's the withholding the the sort of like almost there is so much sexier than the the sort of you know really explicit stuff not that that doesn't have its appeal no, in its terms yeah. too but it's just it's it's a different vibe mm -hmm. um i do really love thinking about this in sort of the context of you know him being a recovered liar and the sort of his like you know mm -hmm. cinematic atonement for that um, but I, I have to say, too, you know, before we start talking about some other stuff, I love that this movie has a happy ending for the Annie McDowell yes. and Spader characters. Yeah. Completely unexpected the first time I watched no. it. You know, you think that it's just going to end in this sort of, like, emotional firebombing for everybody and nobody's going to be happy and everybody's going to be miserable. But I love that he is hopeful in this ending. And I love that he is, like realizes that people can change that relationships can change that things evolve and what you wanted when you were 20 isn't what you wanted what you were when you were 25 isn't what you want when you're 30 um mm -hmm. and i think the ending of that the movie really speaks to the ways in which we can sort of love will come into our lives if we open ourselves up to the possibilities of of all the different shades of love that exist in the world yeah, because he's kind of separating himself from that being a possibility. He uses a camera sort of alienated um, to alienate his own emotions and his physical proximity as well. That's sort of a Spader character trademark, like he's always alienated or taking a step back. And it's interesting to see, like, maybe this is where that began. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. I, I definitely think this is the movie that sort of launches Spader as like a sort of, I, you know, unique erotic presence in movies. Absolutely. Because, you, you know, you see him pop up in things like Less Than Zero or Mannequin, and he's still kind of like doing his Spader shtick. But this is the first movie that you're like, oh, this is like a real human character. And it's really interesting to then see how his choices in the 90s and beyond evolve sort of from this movie. Yeah, I remember watching this with a friend who had never seen it before. And they were so worried. You mentioned the happy ending. And I finally had to tell them, look, it ends okay. Because they were worried <laughs> the whole time. They're like, is he going to blackmail all these women with the tapes? Like, oh, my God. And uh, he said something like, he mentioned having money under his mattress. I think Roger Ebert actually might have made a joke like that in his review. Mm -hmm. Or somebody did. Someone big. So I'm wondering if my friend had read that like, huh. and misconstrued or else just had the same thought. Like, 
how is he getting his money? And oh my God, he's going to blackmail them. And it's like, this is not a thriller, everybody. Like it's calm down. Yeah, it's okay. No, he waited for the next movie we're going to talk about to have a thriller. So yes. yeah, you bet. Uh, I do love that this movie got like grouped with erotic thrillers at Blockbuster in the 90s. Like, <laughs> it's a light thriller. It's an emotional thriller, which is something I stole from there's a great People magazine interview with uh, Zalman King and Patricia Knopp, his partner and wife. And they ta- they're talking about things like Wild Orchid and Nine and a Half Weeks. And that's what Zalman King says. He thinks of his films as uh, emotional thrillers because they're about what happens when the emotional states get so heightened that it becomes like a sort of thriller of just this interpersonal stuff. Not necessarily like, like, yeah, right. It's really interesting. Um, You know, sort of divorced from the like noir plots being rehashed and erotic thrillers. Um, But yeah, I've always thought about this. And this movie to me is definitely an emotional thriller. Yes. Well, next we have a straight-up thriller, a 1990 (laughs) thriller, Bad Influence from L.A. Confidential, Wonder Boys, and the River Wild director, Curtis Hansen. He's one of my favorites. He's always overlooked, too. I don't know why. Totally. Uh, Yes. A yuppie version of Strangers on a Train written by a young David Kep, who wanted to celebrate the weird, suspenseful Hitchcock movies he loved as a kid growing up. And... That's what he did with this entertaining venture that arrives intact with moments of homoerotic subtext. The film stars James Spader and Rob Lowe. He plays a meek yet very successful 20-something who's one of those guys who acquires empty consumer products that he really doesn't need or want just because they're there or, as he says once, they're on sale. Once again, this does include a video camera, so that was an interesting link for the two movies. His role as an acquirer also includes a fiancé who he doesn't actually want to marry. So James Spader's Michael is a man with buyer's remorse, but his buyer's remorse includes his whole life. Coming across a handsome, seductive stranger, Rob Lowe's Alex, who takes him under his wing, He begins to help him stand up for himself and ditch everything he doesn't want. But Alex's methods for this, along with his penchant for breaking the law and taking risks, make Michael realize that an association with Alex is the last thing he wants. Of course, by then, that's when his bully at work has been badly beaten and he's woken up with blood on his hands and has no memory where it's come from. And someone else has wound up dead in his apartment. It's twisty and highly watchable, particularly for Rob Lowe, who's brilliant as the charismatic yet sociopathic villain. If you suspend your disbelief, it is a lot of fun. So what's your take, Kate, on this one? Yeah, I, you know, this was one that I hadn't seen for a really long time. And I don't sort of know how it eluded me because it's so extremely my shit. Like, (laughs) you know, just like, uh, you know, there's that great Instagram account called Cocaine Decor. And this is like Cocaine Decor, the movie, everything. I'm gonna have to look for that. Oh, it's so great. But you will see it's like glass bricks, blue lighting, very (laughs) surfaces, all these like big leather sofas. Um, 
But yeah, I, I, I'm glad you said that this is just like a compulsively watchable movie because it absolutely is. I agree with you that Curtis Hansen remains just ridiculously underrated as a director and was mm-hmm. such a good chameleon and could make, you know, yeah. movies like this and then do something completely different the next go around. But yeah, I saw this maybe five years ago for the first time and was just like, where has this been all my life? Um, one of the things I love about it is that you sort of go in expecting that Rob Lowe is going to be the good guy and Spader is going to be the bad guy because those are just the sort of natural things that we would expect. And it's really nice to get to see Spader play the straight man for once in the yeah. sort of like, you know, noir sap who's, you know, fallen into some not great circumstances and mm-hmm. then has to figure his way out of them. But it's such a great script from Kep too. Like, you know, it's really surprising in a lot of ways. Um, there's a couple shocking character moments in it that you're like, wow, I didn't think we were going to go here. Um, yeah. And we do go there. Um, but yeah, I think it's also a particularly interesting Rob Lowe performance, given that he's sort of coming off the incident with the underage girls. At Yeah, it was bad timing. Yes. <laughs> bad timing. I think I read at some point that they may have pushed the release of this movie because they were like, we don't need that press necessarily. Yeah, uh, plus he has a three-way in it. And so, yeah, yeah just like at the, <laughs> yeah, it was little too close for comfort there, Rob. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting because I think this movie predicts a lot of trends that worse erotic thrillers would pick up in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Like there's, you know, you mentioned there's the thread between these two movies of the sort of videotaping. And, you know, I think the videotapes are used to really kind of chilling effect in bad influence, whereas you have yeah. something like Sliver where it's just like, oh, this all just makes me feel super icky. And like, yeah. I don't know what the I take 10 showers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, But yeah, Bad Influence is just like a great L.A. movie. It's a great, like, you know, long 80s movie. It's it's 1990, but we're still very much in the 80s. Um, And I love seeing Spader sort of have to wiggle his way out as a good guy and, and play against type, which he doesn't get to do very much. Yeah, absolutely. I know Rob Lowe initially wanted to play the good guy. So it was really brave of him. I think it was David Kep. actually, I think it's on the Blu-ray, he mentions in an interview uh, that he took him to lunch and like talked him into why he was Alex. And it's so good. And it's a really nice double feature with another Rob Lowe thriller from the 80s called Masquerade. Did you see that one? Love that movie. I watched that in quarantine for the first time. And I was like, this rips. Also a movie with a lot of great homoerotic tension for an erotic thriller. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But like, I don't know. You do wonder why Rob Lowe didn't sort of pursue more of this stuff in his wheelhouse. Because he's so good at playing these Mm -hmm. just like yuppie sociopaths. But I get, you know, if you're Rob Lowe, you probably want to divorce yourself. uh, Yeah. You want to be the good guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But um, that's super interesting that Kep was the one that sort of pushed him to to go to the villain role. Because, yeah, it was totally unexpected when I watched this for the first time that that is the way that things ended up going. But I, I was glad you mentioned Strangers on a Train, too, because it does very much feel like... This is a classic plot. You guys sort of know the broad strokes of probably what's going to happen here. But the the details of this one, I think, are super fun. 
Yeah, there's also a little bit of rope because of the dead body that he has to get rid of. I love that whole sequence. It's yeah. a little over the top. There's some dark <laughs> humor there, but it, it's just great. But no, it was really funny because I saw Bad Influence and Masquerade both for the first time. I think it was 2019. And I wrote an essay on Bad Influence just because I was so like obsessed with it right after I watched it. And somebody who read that got my address, which is not that hard to do, like my business address, because years ago I registered an LLC and I still use that box. But they actually sent me a DVD of Bad Influence and Masquerade and said they wanted me to write about Masquerade. And I haven't done it yet. I will, I promise. But I was thinking, God, that'd be perfect to watch them back to back. Yeah, Masquerade, guys, is also just wonderful. It's a script from pre-law and order Dick Wolf. And you want to talk yeah. about twisty, turny, don't know what's going to happen next. I am also a Meg Tilly stan, and I think another She's actor, wonderful, yeah. I, Hollywood, like, never quite figured out what to do with her, but she's no. so good in that. Um, yeah, I, the, these movies are very much of a piece with each other, and you you wonder, you know... Hollywood is not great at making middle budget movies anymore, period. Mm -mm. But these are the kind of weird little gems that we really miss because we're not doing as much stuff in this middle budget range. And it's like, yeah, is Bad Influence the best movie I've ever seen? No. Is it like great cinema? Probably not. Is it an absolutely great time for 90 minutes? You bet it is. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of keeps picking up speed. It's like it's going up a hill and it's building. Like you're just, you're along for the ride. It's more psychological. You're interested in this man sort of coming in to his own. There's duality there between the men. And then I'd say maybe the last half hour or so, it's like you're just just going down a huge hill because (laughs) it's... It's so batshit. I mean, you just kind of have to laugh. But like, if you accept it and suspend your disbelief, you're going to have a a really fun time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad we're not spoiling most of the plot points in the movie, too. No, I don't want to just go into. Um, But yeah, it's I think it's on HBO Max now, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, speaking, we were talking about other sort of brat pack actors and who sort of transcended that, but you do wonder why a Spader, a Rob Lowe sort of gets out of that mold, whereas you have people like Judd Nelson who never really like transcended. Mm -hmm. And you're like, but Judd Nelson could have been playing these roles too. Like he sort of had that energy. So it's just super interesting in retrospect to see whose careers went in which directions. Yeah. 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 I'm very yeah. excited for this uh, Andrew McCarthy memoir that's coming out later this year called Brat. Uh, I'm sure we're going to get lots of tea from uh, Andrew. <laughs> you know, when you were talking about Judd Nelson, I immediately started to think of St. Elmo's Fire. And I was like, who are all the guys in that again? It was Emilio. It was Rob Lowe. It was McCarthy and Anthony. But no, not Anthony Michael Hall. Judd Nelson is the Judd the Nelson. Board. Yes. <laughs> Andy McDowell's in it as well. It's yeah. We're all coming out of the brat pack years, you guys. Totally. totally. Yes. But yeah, guys, watch Bad Influence. It's just a hoot. Like, I don't know. I It bums me out that more people didn't realize how many sort of noir plots you could recycle in the 90s and put them in this kind of yuppified uh, aspirational wealth context. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they, they're totally as res- relevant and as resonant as they were in the 50s. Yeah, very true. Well, this brings us to the controversial 1996 film from writer-director David Cronenberg, Crash, 
which is an adaptation of the 1973 novel by J.G. Ballard. The novel is also named Crash. And it similarly caused quite a shocking stir when it was first published. Playing the lead, a character who's actually named James Ballard, as in the novel, Spader is a kinky film producer with a voracious appetite for sex, which he has in common with his wife, Catherine Deborah Kara Unger, as the two are in an open marriage and enjoy sharing tales of their encounters to stimulate their lovemaking. Obviously a hedonist living a fast lifestyle after he loses control on the highway while reading and flipping pages in his car at the steering wheel, he crashes into another car, killing the husband of Holly Hunter's Dr. Helen Remington, who exposes herself to him in the aftermath. Both he and Helen recuperate at an airport hospital and his wife continues their sexy story time by recounting the grisly details of the accident. And he similarly meets another macabre fetishist, Elias Cotias, who is entranced by his injuries in the hall, who Spader initially takes for a hospital employee, soon embarking on a torrid affair with Helen, which they carry out in cars. After meeting officially first at James' wrecked car, they quickly become devotees of Cotius's Vaughn, who stages car crashes of celebrities for those who have the same fixation of feeling most aroused and alive when they just escape, or don't, death. Also featuring Rosanna Arquette as a disabled woman whose brace matches the aesthetic of her fishnets, leather, and black bondage wear. The characters in this cold movie have sex almost as mechanically as they drive most cars, linking the two as well as the emotional alienation and isolation of us as we move closer to the millennium, which Jessica Kiang wrote about in her excellent Criterion essay of the film. It is a fascinating and disturbing watch. The movie received a special jury prize at the Cannes Film Festival, but jury president Francis Ford Coppola was so appalled by the movie that he refused to hand the award to Cronenberg or even shake the man's hand. I mean, that's just, that still blows my mind. Yes. But meanwhile, Coppola's friend Martin Scorsese loved the film so much that he included it on his top 10 best films of the 90s list opposite Roger Ebert while sitting in for the late Gene Siskel. It is a divisive, shocking film. What can I say? But it is one I was surprised to like as much as I did, even if I never want to meet anyone like these characters in real life. So what do you think of Crash? First of all, I just have to say I'm going to steal macabre fetishist uh, for all future descriptions okay. of Elias Cotillas in this movie, so just a heads up. Um, yeah, Crash. I saw Crash. I think I was 13, 12 or 13. I was way too young to be watching it. But it was by that point, we subscribed to Entertainment Weekly when I was a kid. And so like a lot of my culture came from Entertainment Weekly. And I remember Lisa Schwartzbaum talking about constantly this being one of her favorite movies of the 90s. And I, I remember like, that too, because I was a yeah. subscriber. Yeah. Yeah, it was a great time, and it was a great, I don't know, There, that was just a great time to be, like, a magazine kid, because uh -huh. you would read about a movie like Crash and then not be able to see it for five years, and so then, yeah. like, by the time it's on cable, you're like, oh, my God. Um, but I definitely knew that it was supposed to be, like, one of the wildest, like, most explicit Hollywood movies ever made, so I definitely sought it out. 
But like some of the other stuff we've talked about, there is a real warmth in Crash to me. I mean, yes, the sex scenes are mechanical. Yes, there's this sort of chilly distance from every sort of emotional interaction. But there are also other elements of the film. Like, I think this is one of the healthiest depictions of polyamory in movies, period. Like, yeah. everybody is on the same page. Everybody is communicating. And Very true. I love that there is no sort of discussion of the, the open marriage aspect with Spader and uh, yeah. character. It's just what they do. Um, and the performances, the staging, the sort of emotional mood that carries you through. I mean, Cronenberg is one of my favorite directors. And I, the older I get, more and more I think this might be like the quintessential Cronenberg film for the way oh, it fuses sex, and vi- sex and violence together. Um, but yeah, this is another one I find myself watching at least once a year. I got to see it a couple years ago at the New Beverly on a print, which was really interesting because you realize that all the home video versions you've ever seen still have a couple things neutered from them. You know, oh, wow. there's a there's a couple shots that linger in a way that do not. Um, But I love what Ebert said in his review about how it's structured like a porno in that (laughs) every possible combination of characters who can sleep with each other has slept together and the movie is over. Um, But yeah, I just, I think this is a towering achievement. I only in the nineties, could you get Oscar winner, Holly Hunter off the piano? (laughs) Like, Spader very much on his, you know, sort of Hollywood tick. Uh, Rosanna Arquette, who's still, you know, incredibly famous at this moment. To me, the great, one of the great Oscar snubs of all time is Elias Coteus not being nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this movie. His performance as Vaughn is just something else entirely. Like, I... I don't really have the superlatives for it. It feels really sort of otherworldly. He's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I, you know, I I know this is a divisive film. I know it's very alienating for a lot of viewers, but I absolutely love it. I mean, going around on Twitter last week was like, what are your 10 favorite films in the 90s? And I was like, yeah, it's Crash. That's my favorite movie of the 90s. I've there seen you go. that. that was, <laughs> like, yep, that, I'm having a run. Perfect. <laughs> yes. I When I was watching this, it was interesting because I was thinking in a weird way, Elias is the Canadian James Spader. It, because when he made this, he was coming off the uh, Agoyan movies yeah, where he played like one in particular, I think it was called The Adjuster, I think. Yeah. Have you seen this one? I haven't seen it, but it's funny. There was a documentary on IFC in the 90s that I have never been able to find again that talked about sex in Canadian films in particular. And they spend a lot of time on Egoyan and Cronenberg. And so yep. like, for me, they're always linked in my mind that way. Yes, absolutely. In that movie, when people's houses have burned down and stuff, he's the first on the scene. And he keeps telling them in a very calm manner, like, your body is in shock right now. And then he winds up, he has, he's basically sleeping with all of these people. He's, you know, the insurance adjuster everybody needs. No, I'm just kidding. But, <laughs> you know, it's funny. And then he was in Exotica and it's like, this is somebody who took his, he was older than, well, he actually was in a Brat Pack movie, Some Kind of Wonderful. And then he did Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Then he took a left turn into like playing... <laughs> spaderific kind of roles so it was perfect it was also interesting to hear holly hunter was the one who was saying how if it's a dark character 
She loved playing people who were completely different from herself. And I just thought the daring, like after the piano, after winning the award, she could have chosen anything, but she said she was always asking her agent, like, what is Cronenberg up to? And I thought, boy, you know, it's just amazing to get all of these actors just trusting their director and starring in an NC-17 movie. Spader has said he wouldn't have done it if it wasn't for Cronenberg. So I think this might have even been a little out of James Spader's <laughs> comfort zone. Like, you know, I played some fucked up people. No, <laughs> but, but this takes the cake. No, absolutely. It's a hard thing to wrap your brain around. I yeah. mean, you know, there's just, we are hardwired to say sex and car crashes are two things that do not go together. Mm -hmm. And this movie really confronts you and makes you challenge like, oh, what do I find arousing? Why do I find it arousing? Mm -hmm. What does that, how does that fit into the rest of culture, the rest of my peers? What happens when I have an aberrant sexual preference or interest? And what do I sort of do with that as, mm -hmm. as a person who can do something with it? Um, but, you know, I think, you know, car crashes are very specific to sort of Cronenberg's ethos in terms of the destruction creation thing but I do sometimes think about if more people would have seen this movie if it was like a little bit more palatable if the sort mm -hmm. of fetish object wasn't car crashes wasn't this sort of act of violence but I know this was a huge passion project for Cronenberg and you mm -hmm. know we've been trying to make it for years and years but you really do realize like this was the only moment in time in which this movie could have been made and I yeah. highly doubt like you know if you don't have Holly Hunter post Oscar signing on for this, like, does this movie get made? I don't know. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, but it's fascinating. It's another one that I find just layers upon layers every time I watch it. And, um, yeah, it's funny. I, you know, I saw somebody recently say that they thought the sort of midpoint sex scene between Spader and Unger when they are sort of narrating very explicitly things mm -hmm. they were doing, things they would like to do. They're like, oh, this is like the unsexiest, like most clinical thing I've ever heard. And I was really glad to see a lot of people sort of respond of like, hey, bruh, like, you know what's super sexy? Like, open communication and really <laughs> frank conversations with your partner about what works and what doesn't work. And, like, you know, I think this movie treats um, sexual desire and sexual preferences with a real sort of seriousness mm -hmm. that we don't get to see in a lot of other movies. And Cronenberg is always so good at realizing that that sort of death urge, sex urge are so intertwined, and most of his films get into that. But I love that this one, in its own way, has a sort of positive ending, too. I mean, like, yeah, just the idea that these people are going to keep on doing their weird little thing. Until and, they die, yep. <laughs> yeah, and I love that we get, like, glimpses of, like, you know, um, Holly Hunter and Roseanne Arquette are probably going to, like, begin a romantic relationship. And just, I don't know, I love how queer it is. Like, yeah, it's not, bold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, the first time I watched it, and when you realize that Spader and Elias Coteus are going to have sex, you're like, wait a minute. And they're, like, not just, like, a, you know, oh, it's, like, two dudes smooching, but... I don't know, there's still not a lot of explicit gay sex in, in mainstream no. movies, and it's really cool to see two dudes at the sort of peak of their fame just, like, making out with each other. Like, yeah. God bless you, Cronenberg. <laughs> I know. Yeah. The other thing I like about it a lot 
is, and I remember when it came out, I've had five major spine surgeries. So I have like tons of metal. And I remember this coming out in 96 and just hearing about it just pissed me off. I didn't, it just, the premise, I'm like, I'm never going to see this movie. And I didn't until it was actually like last fall. One Mm. of my friends had it and I was like browsing around on their Plex server. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to watch it. I'm glad I actually didn't see it back then because I think it would have been too disturbing. Mm. But as an adult, now that I know more about Cronenberg's body horror and his, in this film a little bit, his desire to sexualize that, I found it weirdly body positive and disability positive. I mean, they're kinky as fuck and it's creepy. But at the same time, you know, you've got Rosanna Arquette looking just sexier than Get Out in her whole getup and you know they zero in on her injuries or the fact that she has survived and she's almost part mechanical herself which is kind of the point of the movie even the sex scenes are very mechanical like they even take on car and driving characteristics like it's always the one breast and it's always like there's a certain just choreography to it people don't really look each other in the eye very much it's like they're sort of just get in get off get out and yeah so it's very much like driving a car putting things into you know cruise control a little bit so (laughs) it's interesting as an adult to see these levels of what it's probably saying that I know I wouldn't have gotten at all when I was younger yeah yeah, because you sort of go in being like, okay, throw me Cronenberg. Like, I've seen a <laughs> bunch of crazy stuff before. Yeah. Like, what are we going to do here? But I'm glad you mentioned Rosanna Arquette, too, because, like, I that's my favorite sex scene in the movie is her and Spader in the car. And what I love about it is that, yes, it's a hot sex scene, but it gets into the practicalities of, like, yeah. having sex and, like, the actual mechanics of it in mm-hmm. a way that, like... I don't think a lot of movies get to and I love the sort of awkwardness and like when you know he like rips her stockings and the like you know gotta get her leg in just the right position and yeah. it's like all of that stuff is almost more important than the sex itself the, like, oh yeah getting there but I love that that character is shown as so empowered through her disability mm-hmm. and has learned to like you know I don't want to say sexualize that part of herself, but has learned to integrate her disability in a way that allows her to be a sexual being with agency. And I think that's super cool. You know, in a perfect world, I think that character would have been played by somebody who, you know, dealt with similar disability issues and could really Mm -hmm. speak to that experience from a really authentic place. But I, you know, I think the movie is incredibly respectful to... Mm -hmm to her and like you were saying yeah these people are on the fringes of society and doing things that probably 99% of us aren't interested in doing but Mm -hmm. I appreciate that the movie is very respectful and serious about what they're into and doesn't treat it like a punchline doesn't treat it like Mm -hmm. you know oh these people are crazy Mm because that's the thing about the movie as an adult that I think resonates is we all have whatever our thing is whatever our interest is that if you know we were presented with this like you know sort of hot group of people who are really interested in it too like who could resist that who wouldn't go down that road and like see how far that rabbit hole goes and I love that Crash takes us all the way down the rabbit hole mm-hmm. yeah absolutely well obviously there are other films with James Spader that we could be discussing here as well so before you go do you have any other favorites of his or just films in general you'd like to recommend 
Yeah, you know, I the Spader movie that I find myself recommending to most people because they haven't seen it and it's not on their radar is White Palace. My favorite. Is, uh, <laughs> I yeah, mean, it's um, <laughs> okay. There's Sex Lies and Videotape, but the one I watch the most, White Palace. Yes, I also watch White Palace. That's the one I, I probably watch like three times a year. It's this beautiful, just really heartfelt. May-December romance between Susan Sarandon and James Spader, and they've both been through incredibly traumatic, painful events in their life. Mm -hmm. And they sort of come together in this one-night stand moment that you think is going to be that, and then it turns into something more serious. And like Crash and like Sex, Lies, and Videotape and some of these other movies we're talking about, I love White Palace because it's a movie that understands that sexual desire and physical connection is a huge part of coupling and why coupling Mm -hmm. works. And so many movies, you don't feel that between the actors. Like, they have the sort of window dressing of, like, they're in a relationship, they're married, whatever. But I love that White Palace really makes you understand that, like, yeah, maybe a physical connection is enough. Maybe lust is enough. Like, Mm -hmm. maybe that, or at least for these two for now. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other, like, off the beaten path stuff. I mean, I think Less Than Zero is a really interesting cultural document. I don't think it's a good adaptation of the book or a particularly good movie even, but I do think it's a great snapshot of late 80s LA and how we were thinking about youth culture at that time and it's really interesting to see like Robert Downey Jr. play a very drug addicted character in that movie compared to what his public persona is now and just to think about how far he's come but yeah I don't know that's an interesting one because I think it subverts a lot of what we think about when we think about these like 80s teen movies and brat packy kind of stuff and Mm -hmm. You know, the Spader character in that, he plays the sort of local drug dealer, Rip, and he's way less terrible than he is in the in the book, in the movie. But there's there's some really interesting scenes with him and McCarthy in that as well, which is interesting post um, Pretty in Pink to see how they they sort of work together there. But yeah, you know, I'm slowly working my way through the, the Spader filmography. I think I'm around... 25 out of the 41 movies he's made so slowly but surely i'm definitely putting off some of the more recent stuff Mm -hmm. uh (laughs) but yeah you know it's like oh i guess maybe i'll watch age of ultron again if i have to um but yeah guys white palace unfortunately i don't think is streaming and is not the easiest to find it's like a shitty dvd is the option but it's so good another one of these shitty dvd yeah yeah it's it's, it's another one of these, like, middle budget, like, why don't we make movies like this for grownups anymore? Yeah. One thing I'm just kicking myself for not picking up on is in Crash, of course, they watch car crash videos to get off the uh, Cotius character, and all of them do, basically. So that's another one that, with videotapes, we had three movies that dealt with videotapes, and today was also kind of six degrees of the Brat Pack, basically. All three of these movies. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. What's, the, what's the moniker there? It's like Brat's Lies and Videotape. Like. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Totally. Yeah. Yes. Well, I want to thank you so much, Kate. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for talking to me about James Spader. What well, you're welcome back anytime. Doesn't have to be Spader. I'm gonna let you choose next time. <laughs> yes, don't bully you into it. But I really appreciated this. 
yeah, no, super fun. And, you know, I just, Spader is one of those actors that, like, we truly don't make them like that anymore. It's really hard to think of a contemporary equivalent, somebody who's in their late 20s or early 30s now and is sort of taking the chances that he was able to take Mm -hmm. at that point in his career. But yeah, thank you so much for having me, Jen. This was a delight. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.